to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, today, my guest is in Tokyo, I believe, author of two books and someone I have been wanting to talk to for a long time. David, would you like to uh, introduce yourself? How are you doing? Uh, I'm W. David Marks. I live in Tokyo, Japan, and I'm the author of a book called Amatora, How Japan Saved American Style and Status and Culture, uh, which came out last year, which is kind of a general look at the way that people search for status and how that uh, creates macro trends that we call culture. And uh, it's not specifically about men's fashion, but there's quite a lot of men's fashion in there because men's fashion has really great examples of this. But thank you so much for having me on. Now, before we get into the books, I am really curious how you ended up in Tokyo. And also, you clearly do have a strong interest in men's fashion. This is true, and those things are not unrelated. Uh, So I grew up in the American South and mostly in a city called Pensacola, which is in Florida, but it's about 20 minutes from Alabama. Uh, and so it's it's a much more kind of southern part of Florida than uh, when you think of Miami or something like that. And growing up there, the South was still quite preppy while the rest of the country kind of moved on from that. And so pastel, madras, uh, and button-down shirts, those were all kind of normal things. And, and uh, since my father was in academics, his style was very much kind of formed by those Ivy League years in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, all of his ties were regimental ties. And, you know, my my mom just shopped at Polo and Brooks Brothers and all those places. So I grew up with all that just kind of in the background. And of course, when I was 15 or 16, completely hated it because I was into alternative music and um, watching MTV and thought all this preppy stuff was terrible. And, uh, you know, the main thing about Pensacola is that it's really not near any other big city. So that, you know, a lot of people live in small towns where you can drive for two hours and go to a big city, but Pensacola is pretty far from everything. And so I felt quite isolated uh, and really looked for any way to, you know, expand my experiences. And so I had studied French and German in in, in high school. And then I had the opportunity through a sister city connection of Pensacola and a place in Japan to go to Japan when I was about 17 uh, for three weeks and just uh, fell in love with it and loved the experience and felt that Japanese was a much easier language to learn than German uh, in particular. And so uh, I started kind of studying on my own. And then when I went to college, had uh, majored in East Asian studies and had an opportunity to go to Tokyo for the first time when I was Uh, about 19. And there I discovered street fashion. I mean, one of the main things was I didn't dress particularly well. I wasn't interested in fashion, especially with fashion, that word, the word fashion, I think at the time to a normal American teenage boy was completely foreign. And uh, going to Japan, it was, it was bizarre. Number one, that everyone just dressed immaculately, but also that things like European designer brands seemed to be quite close to people's lives in a way they weren't to mine. And so I first got interested in street fashion with Bathing Ape and the brands out of Harajuku. And then kind of from there developed an interest in fashion in general, both personally and as a kind of academic subject and sociological subject and ended up writing my thesis on uh, a bathing ape and their marketing techniques because they were doing things that are now quite normal, but at the time were strange 
which is you could sell 100 t-shirts, but they would only make 15. Or, uh, you know, kids would line up for three hours to buy things. There was a reseller market. Just, you know, all these things around t-shirts were, were very odd to me as an American. And so I got interested in fashion from that angle. And then I think especially as there was the menswear boom kind of in the early 2000s, um, you know, I kind of had it on the Japan side. And then when I noticed people overseas were interested in men's fashion and prep and, you know, Tom Brown was back, I kind of reclaimed my own heritage because I, I owned, you know, all of those classic garments and I knew them. I just had kind of put them <laughs> away. So, um, you know, from there, I think, it, 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 you know, Japan got me back interested in my own uh, American style, which until that point, I didn't even think about as style or fashion at all. Now you were mentioning about uh, a bathing ape and their marketing tactics. That is where sort of modern sneaker culture, drop culture, I think originated as well, isn't it? That's absolutely true. I, the general story or kind of genealogy of street culture um, starts with Stussy in the sense that Stussy you know, kids in my high school or kids in my middle school wore it. I mean, it wasn't as impossible to buy as Supreme or Bathing Ape, but the approach was very much, we're not going to give it to everybody. We're not going to become a brand that everybody wears. It's going to be still relatively difficult to find. We're only going to put it in certain shops. But I think the Japanese brands took that approach and then they took it to an extreme. And one of the things about Tokyo is just that, you know, it's a city of, what, 12 million people or something, but about 40 million people live close enough to get there on the weekends. So when you go to somewhere like Harajuku, it's not just locals, it's kids from out of town. And so these brands realize that if you get hot, uh, you can instantly become overexposed too quickly. And so they had to put in some sort of artificial scarcity into the product. And so they kind of exacerbated those those techniques that uh, Stussy had created and, and then blew them out to what we have now. And then they started collaborating with each other and doing the double name thing and only making a certain amount of them. And then obviously as the more they did it, the more great feedback they got. And then they realized that if you just make a constant set of limited edition items, then you can sell just as much as making one thing, except for the hype and the uh, frenzy gets a lot uh, more uh, accelerated. And so people are quite interested and more, more engaged. And so it was a really, really smart innovation and then you know supreme at the time because i couldn't get bathing ape back in the u.s and so i would go to new york for weekends and go to supreme and you know buy a t-shirt at supreme but you know you could just walk in and buy a t-shirt at supreme at this point and i thought i don't think it really was until the 2003 or 4 where supreme started getting all the lines and doing the same thing bathing ape was doing but um you know, Supreme and, and Baby Ape kind of came out of the same place, but I think there was a lot of hybridization of that. And then by the time, you know, Bape came to the U.S., Supreme, you know, had the same thing happened and then streetwear became this global phenomenon. And then, you know, these brands in some ways had to do even more limited edition things to make sure that not every single person in the world had the same T-shirts and garments. That's an interesting evolution because as you write about in Amatora, um, sort of Japanese clothing for men didn't really exist that much before World War Two, but since then must have really accelerated with the diversity, uh, adopted styles, the subcultures. It just sort of mushroomed out. What what were they wearing, or what was the status of Japanese menswear before World War Two? Before World War Two. 
there's kind of two stages. So there's a development of tailor-made suits. So men tended to wear suits, and then some of them in the 1920s, basically in the late 1920s, there was a group of men called the Modern Boys who went out and got fancy suits. So suits that did not look like office wear, but imitated Hollywood styles or, you know, were in a, a color that was obviously not suitable for the workplace. And they were kind of um, hanging around in Ginza, which is the one at that point, very westernized neighborhood and uh, picking up girls and wearing these garments and seen as kind of scourges on society. And then with the rise of fascism in the 1930s, there was a big crackdown on that. And so um, it was generally seen that you should not be, uh, you know, wearing these outlandish garments, but also kind of wasting money on, on frivolous things like fashion. And so by the late 30s, early 40s, you really get this whole squashing of any kind of fashion interest because everybody is wearing these, either they're in the army and they're wearing, you know, uniforms for the army or they're wearing these civilian home front uniforms. And so fashion kind of dies. And then after the war, really nobody has the money or the guts to get back into men's fashion other than gangsters and uh, delinquents. And so really the start of all that also in the, you know, the early fifties was very much that wearing American style was a, a kind of um, delinquent activity. And then really it wasn't until Van Jacket brought in Ivy style in the 1960s, very intentionally to create a kind of American casual style that would not be seen as delinquent that you got young people who were from good families starting to wear these garments and not just their school uniforms. So, you know, Japan had always adopted Western fashion as a kind of uniform, even if it wasn't a formal uniform and breaking that uniform for any reason was quite scandalous until the 1960s. And so Amator is really the story of how band jacket started that process. And then it, it kind of flourished in all sorts of ways after that. And, I, and you know, what's interesting is the degree to which Japan is isolated from the rest of the world. And so there was really 30 years where nobody was quite understanding what was going on there. And I think with the rise of the Internet and men's fashion blogs interested in learning anything about men's fashion and, you know, how to do it and what the best things are. Suddenly you had all this access to Japanese source material and people were thinking, where did, where did this come from? Or people were going to Japan for the first time. I mean, when I moved to Tokyo in 2003, maybe once in a while people would come, but you know, in the last five years, it was every week. So a friend is like, Hey, I'm in Tokyo. And it gets, you know, it gets pretty exhausting because I can't meet up with everybody. But uh, once people started showing up and seeing it, they just, you know, thought, where did this all come from? Uh, because it was somewhat, somewhat hidden from view. And then a lot of commentators, when they came, they would see the imitation of American garments, like the rock and roll kids dancing in Harajuku and just make fun of them and think, you know, you don't, you don't get it. You don't get what it's like to be American. And so there was a lot of dismissal of it as well. And then, you know, I think street fashion was one of the first moments where people started coveting garments from uh, Japan. And then from there kind of discovered this entire huge ecosystem. Yeah, it did very much uh, flip around. Um, and it is interesting how you mentioned Van Jacket, how the way they built up, um, and uh, we often talk about they stole the Ivy style from America, uh, a style which 
as you mentioned, didn't start with, there was basically only in Alabama, it still existed because it had been discarded elsewhere. But then they, they went over, found it, and the way it was documented, uh, made into rules and guidelines with photos and lists. And can you talk a bit about that? Right. So, you know, the an analogy I use is if you have, you know, if you're in Japan and everyone says, well, let's play American football. Well, nobody knows how to play American football. No one's brother or father or sister or mother has played American football. And so you have to not only bring all the equipment, but you have to sit down and teach everybody here's the rules of it in a way that you don't in the U.S. because people just kind of pick it up. And so the same thing with Ivy Style is that it was 100% imported. There was no one to imitate. There was no one to look around and say, these soldiers are dressed like Ivy. We're going to dress like them. Um, there's no older brothers or fathers dressed like that. And so they had to basically introduce it. And the way they introduced it was to break it down to a set of rules. And there's something is, you know, very Japanese about that or Confucian or certainly matches a lot of cultural uh, structures and preferences that were existed in Japan. But also it's very much of the function of if you take something, you have to introduce people to it. You have to break down why this is Ivy and this isn't Ivy. And so uh, the interesting thing was that people who were writing those guides, they weren't any, they didn't have any experience with Ivy League style either. Everything they learned was from magazines and manuals and, and I guess not manuals, but just, you know, um, dictionaries and whatever they could find, or they'd talk to a tailor and ask about hook vents and things like that. So they were kind of making it up as they went as well and tried to get as much information as possible. They created somewhat of a fake ivy style in the sense of they put what ivy style to them really was were these high buttoning three button suits um that do not look very ivy at all they look somewhat mod i think from our eyes today um i think they were mistaking the you know two button the uh the roll three three button with a roll on the top and they were buttoning the one on the top and and so you know, it's it's quite interesting. They were putting all this stuff together and it wasn't quite accurate, but they had to really be uh, confident about what they were doing to make other people pick it up. And, you know, the interesting parallel to me is that if when I was reading blogs, let's say 2010 or 11, and that includes um, Put This On and Valet and Ivy Style and, and all that kind of cohort or, or style form or Ask Andy, you saw some of the same behavior, which is people would say, okay, if it's a French cuff shirt, you can wear cuff links, but you can't wear, you can't have button down, you know, all these really strict rules that everyone was trading because it was the same situation that no one really knew how to dress anymore. They couldn't really feel it in their bones. So they had to get expert advice and break it down into rules. And so, you know, as much as you can make fun of that process as being very Japanese at the same time, as soon as people in the West were desperate for the same information, they did the exact same thing. And, and those Japanese guides kind of showed up. And I know that I personally learned a lot about, you know, I knew seersucker was, um, you know, a big part of that culture. Cause I grew up with it, but you know, uh, pin cord, which they call cord in, in Japan is a fabric I didn't know well. And it's like, okay, well, that's another preppy material or, you know, this kind of shirt, you should wear this or, you know, all, all these kind of rules. I think I learned a lot from the Japanese materials. And then as soon as they showed up for people overseas, they were also quite interested and found it useful. Was there ever that many rules in the original Ivy preppy style? 
they were unstated rules. They were kind of tacit rules. And some of it came out of the fact that if you were on one of these campuses, there was usually two, you know, one or two campus stores that would sell what you wore. And my dad even told me he went to Tulane in New Orleans and his mother was like, hey, let's go to the local, you know, he he lived in the city of Bogalusa, which is about an hour away from New Orleans. And his mother was like, oh, let's go buy some clothes at the department store. He's like, no, 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 no. We're going to go to, we're going to go, I'm going to go see what people are dressed like on campus. And then we're going to go to the campus store and we're going to buy those things. But if you went to one of those campus stores, they would say, okay, you need, you know, one white button down Oxford. You need one blue. You need one navy blazer. You need one tweed. You need one pair of wool slacks. You need, you know, one pair of khakis, you know, whatever it is. And so, you know, these stores didn't sell that much. And so just based off of what they were selling, uh, that's kind of how the, the uniform formed. And then obviously you, you get these conventions where everybody's looking around and they're all wearing the same things and those things become proper or not. And, you know, then you have some fancy dressers or people who are, you know, figuring out what they're doing up in Princeton and copying that and taking some of those ideas in. But, um, you know, there was never a guide. It was just simply that you would look around and try to, you know, imitate the upperclassmen. I do think that, there was, you know, one of the things I, I talk about status and culture is just the degree to which class position and the status seeking of individuals in, in certain situations causes certain aesthetics. And so one of the, the clearest examples was that at these universities in the 50s, there there became something quite uh, glamorous about destroying your your clothing, especially, you know, you have white bucks and they're just really dirty or you're, you're wearing, you know, shoes that are completely taped up, uh, you know, Sabago, you know, Basswegians that are completely taped up or the back of your Oxford shirt is all frayed or you have, you know, holes in your sweater. Things like that were seen as cool because number one, it meant that you had those garments for a very, very long time that you didn't show up and just, you know, suddenly try to pretend like you're part of that world. I mean, it was also a boys college where, you know, there probably wasn't pressure on a daily basis necessarily to impress, uh, you know, people of the opposite sex or or whomever. And then also the the privilege of knowing that you're born rich and you don't need to prove it to anybody because people know who you are. And so if you've got holes in your sweater, who cares because you're a Rockefeller or or whatever it is. And so um, these this basically created another convention, which was it was cool to have pretty rundown clothing rather than, you know, new sharp clothing. And the same thing, interestingly, the same thing was happening in Japan because uh, Kensuke Ishizu, who founded Van Jacket, I think one of the reasons he understood preppy style or ivy style instantly was that they were wearing kind of frayed garments and his own uh, high school experience was very similar because the kids there um, were doing the same thing because that's what elite college kids did in Japan, which is the same thing happened. It was they were elites. They showed up. It it was uh, more glamorous to have your um, uniform all shabby rather than to be you know sparkling clean. So um, anyway, the point is that that's not a rule. Nobody you didn't show up and said you need to you know destroy your shoes. But I think people figured out quite quickly that okay the the upperclassmen who are cool are wearing you know completely destroyed Basswegians rather than brand new ones. As an aside, we kind of see that now as well, where someone will buy a pair of really expensive raw denim jeans and a pair of $1,000 boots and just trash them. 
in the name of style. I, I can't relate to it myself. It just seems so wasteful, but... But also, you know, fake sometimes. But apparently, you know, someone uh, had po- pointed out last week that Birkin bags, which are one of the most expensive, you know, luxury handbags, that the real real is now selling fair conditioned ones and ones that aren't, you know, basically near mint, never used used bags, but actually a little bit beat up. And those are selling very, very well because it is a lot cooler to have inherited a Birkin bag or at least to show that pretend like you've inherited your Birkin bag rather than buy it yourself because it points to intergenerational wealth. And, and so, you know, I mean, if you want to connect my two books, that's, that, that's where it kind of shows up is that this kind of preppy and Ivy style has an aesthetic that has, you know, lots of different, uh, sources, but at the end of the day, the way the clothing was being worn, relatively minimal, relatively laid back, um, quite, uh, worn in, I think is an aesthetic that many of us enjoy, but it came from a very specific place and a very specific set of people. Mm, it's that old money look where an old barber looks better than a new barber, uh, but you have to have worn it in yourself. I've I've got a barber that is so destroyed, and, and I see people's recent barbers and the color is completely different and mine is so sun scorched and um and i'm always thinking like should, I, I need to get this rewaxed but at the same time it, it has this look that i don't even know if it looks good but i know it looks completely destroyed and i always think okay is that is that what i'm aiming for or should i just fix it i, I can't sort of put uh, put words to why an old destroyed looking one which desperately needs both repairs and wax looks so much better but it it does and it's a different type of people who buy the new ones and they'll sort of look at it after a year or two and it sort of they're not quite they don't quite understand the rewaxing things so they'll just toss it and get a new one so yeah um at the same time as um van jacket was uh building up the ivy uh there were also people in Japan looking at American vintage uh, work where, and that I believe that's around the same time they started going over to the US to to buy up stuff for resale in Japan. The, the timeline's a little different. I mean, what, what was happening kind of at the same time as Van Jacket was that there was a trade in jeans. And in the late 50s, they started importing some jeans and they were doing relatively well in the black markets, more or less, but they were not a mainstream garment and you couldn't buy them at department stores and you really had to know to buy them. Uh, and, you know, I've uh, Yasuhiko Kobayashi, the illustrator who was really fundamental in, in so much of this whole story. And I got to interview, you know, he talks a lot about seeing jeans in a Western, like an American Western and being like, oh, I want to get these, but then it taking like a year to even figure out where they were sold. He had to ask a lot of people. So they were relatively rare, even though they were being imported. And then, you know, the, the sellers were talking to manufacturers and ended up convincing one in uh, Okayama to, you know, try to make Japanese jeans for the first time. And they had to bring over the denim themselves and, and make them. And so by the mid sixties, you start getting Japanese jeans, but they were still pretty marginal. And then from there, you know, you get much more interest uh, and kids are all wearing jeans. And then by the 1970s, when everyone's wearing jeans, then 
the snobs go off and say, well, it's got to be Levi's. And so then when it's got to be Levi's, they're buying Levi's and then they realize, oh, the 501s that you can buy new are not as good as the old 501s. And so then they're going to the U.S. to try to get all the dead stock. And the thing about the dead stock when they started going to the U.S. is that you could go to some obscure town and just find their men's store and say, do you have any old stock of jeans that you want to get rid of? And they said, yeah, these are $9 a pair. And it's like, thank you. And then they would ship them back to Japan and sell them for, I don't know, $300. Then that became $3,000 <laughs> once the market got more saturated. And so, um, you know, at the beginning, it was it was a really cheap enterprise. And then it became a really expensive one. And now, you know, I'm sure all that dead stock is sitting in Japan. There's a store called Banana Boat in Harajuku, and I haven't been in a while, but it was pretty incredible. You would walk in and they would just, they just have a wall of vintage dead stock Levi's 1966 models, like in every possible size. And apparently there's an entire warehouse of more and they're all there. I mean, if you want a pair of 1966 dead stock Levi's 501s, in banana boat just go there and you know they probably have your size and so they just you know in the 80s i guess collected all of them and they're just you know i think they're about three thousand dollars a pair or something but you know they're 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 there and then of course you know levi's now makes a reproduction of that and etc etc so it's a much more diverse market but uh so the the vintage came the whole vintage movement came out of you know the early 80s and you know once Japanese manufacturers had kind of saturated the market and you know this is again goes back to status seeking you know if if having jeans itself was a cer- certain status move then at some point everybody has jeans because the Japanese manufacturers are making them available to everybody and then at some point in the 70s having American jeans was fancy but then having new American jeans was not fancy and so then people had to go one step further and get the originals and then once the originals became too expensive then you know Evisu and Full Count and these brands all made replicas that were in some ways you know increasingly much you know better than the originals and and then you got to you know this whole kind of war between all these rival denim makers of saying you know, we dip our yarns in better indigo more and use better rivets and, you know, all, all sorts of insane things where the jeans were, you know, going from being a really utilitarian garment to a luxury item. And so um, that escalation, you know, is, in, a, in, in broadly speaking, I would call it kind of a status competition, but, you know, vintage did not come out of people necessarily simply thinking that they were, uh, that you know, p- poor can't afford clothing. It was kind of a a move beyond the ubiquity of ivy and jeans. Whereas it might have been thrifting, it has now become a, a high value status item. So that nine dollar pair of jeans is now a three thousand dollar pair, and it's clearly not the same guy who's looking for them. Right. <laughs> I did hear recently that um, a lot of ex-Japanese ex-American vintage, i.e. vintage that has come from America to Japan, has now been discarded in Japan, and you can buy it from Malaysia. Right. Which is kind of weird to behold. Yeah, I started hearing that a couple of years ago, that Thailand and Malaysia were now new sources of the, the vintage world. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't know the specifics of it. There was a great article, and I believe the New York Times about the Malaysia uh, trade. But yeah, there's 
there's a lot there and we're number one we're much more you know globalized the fact that you can get things from thailand and malaysia and they're very smart about putting it on the auction sites but also just the degree to which um japan's singular obsession with american style is now uh pretty much a global obsession and so japan no longer has that monopoly on you know uh, those places it's the same with scandinavian furniture which is it used to be the only people who really wanted you know hans wegner um kind of mid-century modernist furniture were the japanese and so they were just taking these freighters to denmark and putting it you know you know (laughs) come on put it in the put in the container and shipping it back to japan and then you know we were looking for a piece and couldn't find it and the place told us oh you know singapore taiwan China, all of these stores now have kind of uh, discovered all this, I think, you know, mostly through looking at Japanese furniture stores. And so now they're ordering it, too, and it's becoming much more competitive. So, um, you know, Japan had this kind of wonderland of mid-century vintage in the 90s and 2000s because nobody else cared. And now everyone, you know, following Japan's lead is interested. Uh, and so, yeah, t- Thailand and Malaysia are the, the next spots for this. And I also I heard even maybe... 12 years ago or something, the kids in Indonesia uh, were really into heavy 19-ounce, 20-ounce rigid denim, uh, which is bizarre because if you've ever been to Jakarta, it's you know on the equator, and the last thing you want to do is wear denim of any kind. Well, I think Indonesia is where all these um, sort of uh, very, very small boot makers have been springing up now. Uh, just one or two guys making boots, totally handcrafted, um, and people are going nuts for them, which is kind of, I think, a bit because they're about half the price of mm. some typical American-made boots, but and they look totally legit. But it is interesting how all these things are spreading out into the world and probably wouldn't without the internet. That's right. I mean, the other thing about Amatora is I wrote the book very much for Americans, I mean, I don't think it was conscious. I didn't say that this book is for Americans, but I just assumed that that was the audience who would be interested in this story about, hey, it's your your culture went to Japan and it's coming back to you. And I think that at first American audiences were quite not interested in it. In, and some of it was, I wrote it for probably 15 fashion bloggers, all of whom were, you know, it's the very much the narcissism of small differences world where they were all like, well, who's this guy? I don't like this book. Um, so there was a little bit of resistance there. And then really it caught on in Europe. And then, you know, I didn't think about a Japanese audience for the book at, at all because I thought, well, people in Japan know this story. And so, but, you know, there actually wasn't a book in Japan that kind of put all that into one narrative. And so it came out in Japan and, and had done really well. It's on the seventh printing. And then, you know, it went to Taiwan, which made sense because Taiwan really looks at Popeye and, and Japan quite a bit. And then uh, then it came out in China and they, you know, they rebranded the book to be much more about uh, Harajuku kind of street fashion. Because street fashion, the way the Ivy style became the foundational style for Japan Street fashion is now the foundational style in China, but the book ended up selling the best in China out of, you know, all, all the places it came out in. And then it came out in Korea, which is another market that obviously has a lot of historical issues with Japan, but it, that's, that's selling really well as well. And so, uh, you know, the, this kind of story, it's not just the story of Japan doing this very specific thing, but I think it's, it's an ethos, this ethos of, 
you can look through the past to try to find the ideals, the ideal garments, and then you can make the ideal garments based off the past. I think really only Japan had that approach to making clothing for a very long time. And, and that's the thing that's quite uh, interesting now globally. And I think that Chinese and Korean brands are very much all about new, new, new and inventing the future, but I, they're also going to catch on to, okay, you can go back and look at vintage garments and, and remake things. The manufacturing in both of those places is quite good. So, um, you know, I think the, the kind of Japanese ethos of garments, the only Japanese brands can do this, I think that's also going to probably end in the next 10 years. Um, it's just that Japan has such a head start on it and there's still people who are the utmost experts on all these things in Japan in a way that, you know, the the next generation of experts are only studying now in, in China and Korea. They have also created the legend of the Japanese uh, authenticity and accuracy. And I don't know how you can come and sort of knock them off the throne there afterwards. Yeah. And I think that the Made in Japan brand has been imbued with so much unbelievable cachet and uh, perceptions of quality. And so people think, oh, this is made in Japan. It's incredible. And when you talk to actual Japanese manufacturers and say, oh, you make some things made in Japan, you make things, some things in China, obviously the China things are worse to say, oh, not, that's not true at all. You know, the Chinese manufacturing is quite good. Uh, I think made in China has a branding problem. It doesn't have a quality problem. And the other part of this is um, that, sorry, I lost my, lost my train of thought, but um, I don't think Japanese manufacturing can exist that much longer in the sense that if you go to these factories, a lot of the people there are very old or, you know, you know, a lot of the labor is immigrant labor. So, I mean, that's, that's a probably good sign, which means that it can continue. But, um, you know, the most important thing I think is not the quality of manufacturing. It's that these brands, a lot of them don't make any sense as business propositions. And so when you put so much money into creating some sort of small batch of highly crafted materials and selling them for, you know, not exorbitant prices, that's not a way towards incredible profitability. And so I, I think maybe the superpower that is in Japan is not the meticulousness or the production. It's just the willingness to run businesses that aren't trying to constantly double the profit or expand or reach bigger scale because that those are the situations in which the quality starts decreasing that sounds absolutely wonderful to me but, um... it's great it's great <laughs> to be a consumer of that world but then you you know and and it's great to to see that that is some sort of um potential form of capitalism that you could simply run a business in which you make goods for people who love them that you know that are really high quality goods that are sold at fair prices that you make enough to live a great lifestyle but not you know constantly you know amassing giant amounts of capital or compromising towards the original mission in order to do so um now i i do think in japan you know i, I wrote about this recently because and i i very much dislike historical arguments that say something like you know buddhism came to japan in the eighth century and therefore this is why japanese people behave like this today it's it's much more complicated mm. but i do think that there's a there is some remaining legacy of the caste system that existed until, you know, about 1860 that more or less put, you know, there was aristocrats and the emperor on the top and then there were samurai and then there were farmers and then there were craftspeople and then there were merchants. And so people who are in the business of, of making crafts goods, 
would much rather see themselves as craftspeople than see themselves as business people. Um, so there's a kind of enduring stigma against being a business person. And so if you're making jeans, you want to position yourself as where I'm a craftsperson. I'm not a, you know, jeans manufacturing business. And therefore the whole mythos becomes about your production capabilities and your meticulousness. And then obviously the product kind of leans into that rather than, you know, leans into look at how great we are as a business. So that's, I, again, that's great for consumers. And I think really, you know, we are in this craftsman revival and, people really care about crafts in a world where everything is machine made. And so Japan does have a lead there. And I think it's, is kind of showing that the higher, the, the higher quality consumer market or the higher consumer market is going to be more and more crafts based rather than just um, mass marketed and computer made. Well, there is something unique about knowing sort of almost down to the, who made your actual garment, uh, where the textile came from. I mean, some of it gets taken to ridiculous lengths, but mm -hmm. I mean, from not knowing anything at all, other than the fact that it's on the shelf in the shop, to having all this backstory, at least if you're a man of a certain type, <laughs> I think it tends to be men who get a bit obsessed about these things, going down the rabbit holes in the forums and whatnot. No, just to say the brands, and this also may have started in Japan, but the brands have gotten very good at that kind of storytelling because that's what you're paying for. You're not just paying for a white T-shirt with a pocket. You're paying for this is Egyptian Giza cotton or this is Sea Island cotton, and it took the company three years to apply it to be the supply, get you know supplies of Sea Island cotton, and we looked at... 40 different t-shirt types from the 1950s and, and looked at the stitching and blah, blah, blah. And so then you're paying $300 for a white t-shirt rather than $3. And you feel good about it because if someone's like, that's a cool t-shirt, you're like, hey, it's it's sea, sea Island Cotton. It took this brand three years. And, you know, you just repeat the whole story. And so, um, <laughs> you know, it, that gets also very tedious. I mean, I think about it when you go to, sometimes when you go to Japanese like high-end hotels, every course they bring in, they spend, you know, five minutes explaining where the ingredients came from. You're just like, I've, you know, number one, I'm probably having a conversation with the other person. And number two, it's like, I get it. Can I just eat now? Um, so, you know, these things do get taken to rid ridiculous extremes, but that again is what you're paying for if you're paying a premium. Hmm. I did notice uh, post pandemic, a change in um, Japanese shops facing Europe because before the pandemic you had to, uh, I mean, you could spend ages, uh, on Japanese auction sites, uh, auto-translating stuff, and then finding someone who could proxy it f mm. to you. Uh, and it was such a process. But recently now, I discovered that there's no end of shops in Tokyo who are actually quite happy to reply to email, ship stuff. It's like any other shop in the West. Mm. And all these shops have basically the same inventory, same descriptions, pretty much the same photos. And I was struck by how... Uh, Uninteresting it all suddenly was. <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely talk about that in Status and Culture towards the end, which is the internet has removed the barrier to access, removed the distribution barriers. And a lot of the joy we would take in acquiring things in a pre-internet age was that, do you know how hard it was to get this? And I felt that way about buying CDs in my small town, that there there was just a lot of 
albums that were not available that just didn't exist in the record stores. And so if I went to another town, you'd always go to the record store because they would have something that you didn't have. And I'd be so happy to get it. And then I would listen to it over and over and over again because I knew how hard it was to acquire. And, you, you know, we, we really, as human beings, and I think especially as human beings in this very rational world, want to believe that we want things because of the intrinsic properties of that thing. So this is a great CD. I'm going to listen to it. It does not matter how I acquire it. It does not matter who else likes it. I'm just, I'm going to have a personal relationship with this object the same way. It doesn't matter if this jacket costs $50 or $5,000. If it's a great jacket, it's a great jacket, but it's just not true. I, I mean, our, our brains can't draw lines this evenly. And, and these other factors, the, you know, uh, which, I talk about a signaling cost, you know, just, is it expensive? Did it take a lot of time to acquire? Was it difficult to know how to acquire it? Was it difficult to get your hands on it? These things infect our judgment. So we just can't, uh, we, we, we can't do anything about that. And the internet really squashes almost all of them, which is, you know, things are cheaper and the information is costs are zero. And, you know, as you're saying, it used to be at least difficult to get things from Japan. So you knew if you got it that, Hey, I put in the work and I got it, but you know, my rival's not going to get it. And now, you know, you know, even if you don't buy it, you know, your rival could have bought it just as easily. Uh, and, and Japan is really internationalizing. And I'm not surprised at all that the stores are starting to respond to people because they should have 10 years ago. They just weren't, they weren't in that mindset. And now I think they get that the foreign market, especially it's, it's not Europe. It's most definitely Asia is, their growth market. And so they're not going to survive unless they really become international brands. It's interesting what you were saying about records there, because um, I was just the same, but even worse. I lit, grew up in a small town in the far, far north of Norway. It was the biggest town in the area, just 50,000 people. So you, there was nowhere to go within two hours. Yeah. <laughs> you could fly to Oslo, but it's very expensive. But we were ordering records from the UK. Mm. Uh, and then we were had our radio show on local radio. So it was basically a case of getting records no one else had, playing them on the radio, which was sort of our big flex then, like right. on getting stuff for the Instagram today. Uh, I think pretty much a lot of those records, once played on the radio, like garments shown on Instagram, were just carefully put in the archive, mm. probably never to be heard again. But we were the guys with the music no one else yes. had heard. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, if you go back to the Beatles, it's not a coincidence that they were in Liverpool because, you know, Liverpool was a big port and people would come back from the U.S. with American records and they would sell them off. And so they got access to things that other people didn't know. And so it wasn't just playing a rock and roll song was cool. It was you're playing these songs that you had to have the record of to even learn how to play. And, and oh, wow, you know that song. So this has been a value that has driven pop culture for a really, really long time. And we're all waking up to the Internet kind of destroying all of it. And uh, that is that is just kind of changed how we perceive the culture. We find that it's less valuable. I mean, that's my that's my hypothesis. Uh, but we don't want that to be true again, because that those those songs, you, the story you should have told was we just loved the music and we played it and we were so happy to get it. And it didn't matter how difficult it was to acquire. This was just <laughs> great music. But it, it, I don't know. We're lying to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, if we could look back to um, to subcultures in Tokyo, 
you mentioned uh, the rockers dancing and people making fun of them because they weren't authentic. Now, I, I know there's sort of any number of subcultures in Japan. Um, and I do often wonder sort of how authentic are they or is it a sort of cosplay fun thing? Any ideas? The way that I like to think about this is to first to really strictly define these words because the word subculture is thrown around quite a bit and in japan too you know bathing ape and these brands were called subcultural at, at the time and i don't think that's the right use of the word and so in status and culture i define subcultures as more or less working class delinquent teenage groups or any group that in some ways is rejecting the mainstream uh, if if there's mainstream norms, they're rejecting them, and that's their way to kind of form their own groups. And so Teddy Boys are a really clear example of where this starts. And, you know, these are working class kids in the 50s in the UK who are up to no good, but dressing up and, you know, basically stealing upper class Edwardian style and making it their own. Mods do the same thing with Italian suiting vespas but they're more or less working class kids with a little bit of pocket money and you know then there are countercultures which is where you have a group of people who reject mainstream norms on some sort of higher belief system that you know and the hippies are the clear example which is if mainstream society cares about money well we we're the opposite which is we care about everything other than money and so there's some sort of principled belief that that brings you out of of mainstream society. And so those tend to be more middle class and um, upper class in the sense that it's educated people justifying their, you know, leaving society by some principle. And it gets messy because subcultures and countercultures kind of interact um, that, you know, the, the beats, the, the beat poets were very much middle class countercultural, but they were quite inspired by uh, white hipster sub subcultures of, you know, working class American uh, men who were hanging out at jazz clubs and things like that. And then, you know, hippie movement starts as a high minded college campus kind of thing. And then it just becomes a somewhat of a um, lumpen proletariat subculture later. And so uh, that that's kind of the classic, you know, Western model of subcultures. And then there's also ethnic groups um, you know, basically disadvantaged ethnic groups kind of, you know, because they're excluded from society, create their own forms. And, you know, the clearest example is black American culture, which is basically the root of almost all, all American culture that we care about um, today. But, you know, some, so much of that started from the exclusion out of white society and, and kind of creating your own world. Um, and then I would say a fourth category is just a consumer preference group or something like that so you know hey everybody is buying uh preppy clothing well we're gonna buy band t-shirts and you don't really take yourself out of society by doing that and a lot of those are stealing ideas from subcultures and countercultures and, and then you know going to the consumer market and buying it but um you know that that's another thing that we sometimes confuse for subcultures and i would say for japan there are true subcultures i think the in in amatora in chapter six i write about working class kids from outside of tokyo who are in motorcycle gangs and they are a true subculture uh they a lot of the times they have this kind of strange 
imperialist uh, slogans, you know, imperialist slogans they would put on their clothing or they would name their groups somewhat fascist things, but they really didn't have an ideological component. If you talk to them, they weren't necessarily right-wing or fascist, but they were just trying to scare people. And so that, they're a very, very clear subculture. And a lot of the 50s style was, you know, related to that movement. And the 50s boom was kind of a middle-class consumer version of, you know, something they were also interested in. And then if you look at um, otherwise most of the movements like hippies or everything else in Japan, more or less it's people importing a subculture or counterculture and then you know, it becomes commodified and they're just buying it and, and playing along. And so that is more of the kind of cosplay model. And so it's not that Japan doesn't have true countercultures or subcultures. And I, I think Japan has had countercultures in the past too, around artists and communes and things like that. But uh, in general, when you see something described as subcultural in Japan, you know, people who are interested in underground art or, you know, the, again, these Harajuku brands that are in Japan were called subcultural. It's, it's really just kind of an offshoot of the consumer market. Hmm. Listening to you now, I'm, I was just sitting here thinking that so much of what we think of as anything is just cosplaying. I think even the Sex Pistols were cosplaying being punks. Uh, no, I think that's absolutely true. And you know, that's the Sex Pistols. I mean, look, I think personally their origin was, you know, from a from a more subcultural place. But punk was only created in this kind of uh, unholy alliance between working class youth and art school students. And, you know, Malcolm McLaren knew exactly what he was doing. And Vivian mm -hmm. Westwood was most certainly an artist, not a, you know, subcultural provoc provocateur. So, um you know, yes, none, none of these things are as clean as, as you want them to be. Yeah. Uh, I did find one bit in Amatora about um, about this obsession with the uh, facial skin color. Uh, Bihaku, Kogiyaru, and Go. I can't even read my own writing now. Yeah, that, so that, that, that's in status and culture, yes. But that was also this rather sort of bizarre subcultural type of way of distancing yourself from what you really are so you know, that that is very interesting to me because when i came to japan the 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 kogyaru movement was you know had basically taken over shibuya so you went to shibuya and it's just you know like two thousand girls in this kind of style all walking around and it, you know there's this question of where it came from and what the class origin was and, and especially by around 2000 when i was there again it had taken a very dark turn and in general it was known as all these girls prostitute themselves to older men and they you know never shower and they're you know wear this outlandish clothing and it was kind of seen as a, a big social problem and what was you know, the specific style there so the so this is this is kind of what's interesting is that it started the kogyaru style started in the early 90s among rich girls from Tokyo who were, um, you know, basically delinquent high school girls trying to sneak into clubs. And so in order to sneak into clubs, they would, you know, darken their skin and kind of get suntans. And it wasn't, you know, a, pretty, a particularly extreme kind of uh, darkening. It was just as if you were back from a vacation in Hawaii. 
and they would wear somewhat Hawaiian style clothing and they, their hair, instead of being black, they would, you know, dye a kind of amber brown. And so it was kind of a surfer, post-surfer girl, Hawaiian vacation, rich girl look. And there, if you go out to Hayama, which is one of the wealthy beach areas, you'll still see women kind of look like this who are obviously well-to-do, but they're surfers and, and they just, you know, have a, a darker complexion because they're out in the sun all the time. Uh, and and again, Bihaku is is this long-standing Japanese woman aesthetic of having the whitest skin is the, you know, the best skin. So you, you start seeing a break of that because these girls in high school want to get, you know, they want to sneak into clubs. And so the word kogyaru, gyaru is from gal, which means a kind of party girl basically and then ko it means small so it was kind of or child and it was like a child party girl and so that was the nickname they had and then from there it went mainstream and kind of and middle class and then so all these middle class girls around the country are are dyeing their hair and getting you know suntans and and things like that and then the next phase is that all of the delinquent girls who used to join motorcycle gangs realized that what was much cooler is this look that's developing in Shibuya. And so they all start showing up in Shibuya, but they can't afford necessarily necessarily to go to expensive hair salons or to go to suntan salons. And so they just take really, you know, kind of dirt cheap skin dyeing uh, creams and things and darken their skin and then, you know, lighten their hair. And then because they're really trying to scare people rather than to get, you know, sneak into clubs because they have that subcultural delinquency in them. They just start making the, the whole look extreme. So they're painting on eyebrows with magic markers and the hair becomes crazier and crazier colors. And then by, by the time you get to about 2000, you have these women called Yamamba and Yamamba is a word meaning mountain witch. And, you know, literally just kind of, um, <laughs> you know, pushing this look from this original thing, which was, you know, to, to pick up rich guys to this extreme, you know, kind of demonic style with, you know, crazy contact lenses and hair and, and everything. And so, you know, the, to me, that was a very clear example of where you can have the same source material and a, a consumer subculture, or an upper class group can take it one direction. And then working class kids from, outside of Tokyo can take it a completely different direction. And so today, if you ask somebody about Gyaru style, they were more or less say, oh, that's very much a, a you know working class thing because that's what it became, but that was not the origin at all. And it's maybe similar to Teddy Boys in the sense that Teddy Boys, you know, Edwardian style was first very much a upper class Oxford, Cambridge kind of thing. And then it was taken over so much by working class kids that now Edwardian style will always be owned by the the working class subculture version of the teddy boys not the you know previous edwardians what were the boys doing while the girls were dressing as mountain witches so then then there became a, a look called gyaruo which is a like male version and so guys were kind of dressing in a, a male equivalent of that and then by the by the early 2000s you got Basically, it all died off and, and it kind of went too far. And then you got what were called kind of the white gyaru, which is that the some of that ethos was combined back with a, the emphasis on not having the, the dark makeup. And there was this glam glamorous version of gyaru that came out in 2004 or five that then became very, very popular and took over for five or six years. And that was not only just aligned with a working class provincial ethos in Japan 
in terms of aesthetics, but also in lifestyle, which is a lot of the famous models in the magazines of that world were, you know, getting uh, pregnant at 19 and having children, uh, which is, you know, Japan is, is kind of interesting that middle class, upper middle class people in Tokyo don't have kids till they're in their late 30s, but the provincial families, you know, have them much, much younger. And so that, that world was very much uh, class segregated by that point. But, uh, and there was a whole, you know, I use the word in the book Yankee um, for that, that kind of lower, lower class provincial uh, blue collar worker delinquent teens in the seventies and eighties. And then, you know, that, that word kind of comes back in the two thousands to describe the, the men who were a part of that scene. So Yankee and Gyaru kind of become, you know, their, their own thing in the two thousands. But, um, I don't know. I might, again, the, the class, the class origins of these things are things that no one really talks about in Japan. But if you just look at the aesthetics, you can see exactly how they map. And this is a class status thing, isn't it? Where it starts out as a high status among few and is adopted by the masses and loses status underway. But then it became extreme in the process of being a subcultural uniform because the most important thing about a subcultural uniform is it can't look anything like a mainstream uniform. It has to be extreme and it has to be extremely distressing to normal people. And so they had took the same elements. And so if a suntan slightly bothered a middle-class Japanese mother, having your skin in this very artificial fake dyeing cream and having your hair insane colors and demonic contact lenses, obviously is going to scare everybody. Hmm. Trying to think back to the band t-shirts uh, we used to wear for sort of kind of scary bands, <laughs> uh, how unrelatable it is now. Where I would wear a band T-shirt if you put it on me. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, as a kid, you know, Nine Inch Nails and Ministry and and all those bands had this quite. I'm utterly charmed that you mentioned satanic, just those two bands. Yeah, but just almost satanic iconography that you know, as again, like a middle class kid in a really conservative Christian town, you know, just. Um, you know, it it felt very very rebellious to to wear either of those. I I definitely listened to a lot of Ministry and Nine Inch Nails, but did, never had the courage to wear the t-shirts. What is hot in Tokyo now? I mean, where have these styles evolved to in twenty twenty three? It is quite difficult to say, and a lot. You know, I get asked that quite a bit, and one factor is that if you look on the streets of Tokyo. And this was very true in 2019 and obviously the pandemic changed it, but it was very hard to tell who was Japanese or not if you're walking down the streets of Harajuku because most of the people shopping there are not Japanese anymore. They're tourists from from Asia. And so what I would say has been hot for probably about five or six years in a kind of stable way is the move away from very well-fitted slim garments to these big silhouette garments and a kind of athletic big athletic style like a giant champion sweatshirt with a big nanamika uh a-line jacket and new balance sneakers and big pants so it's um you know there's there's kind of elements of it in classic sportswear but the silhouettes blown out pretty pretty big and vintage polo from the 
90s where the sizes were gigantic. Um, I've bought some, recently bought a bunch of vintage polo shirts. I feel like I'm rebuying half of my wardrobe from when I was you know, 14 or something. <laughs> um, but, you know, the I used to hate those shirts because they're so baggy and now it's it's super cool that it's you know double xl or whatever so yeah i think that's kind of the look at the moment here is just this very big big style which if you gained any weight during the pandemic has been quite convenient what was the idea behind the book status and culture so if you if you go to amatora and you think about you know the book itself is a history of American style in Japan. But, you know, a lot of readers got kind of a sense of, oh, this is where culture comes from. This is where cool comes from. This is why things happen. And that is a question I've been thinking about for a long time. I mean, it, it could even be boiled down to what is cool? What does it mean when something is cool? And it's kind of one of these annoying questions like, what is art? where there really isn't a final answer and you kind of debate it. And, you know, the other thing about what is cool is in, in some ways, if you have to ask, you're not cool. Or, you know, even asking the question is somewhat taboo. And, but at the same time, something has to be cool. If we think that it's cool, there must be some property uh, about it that we're, we're judging. And so I had been thinking very long time about where does culture come from and what is it? It's And I've always been very frustrated that the way we describe it is so vague and, and um, imprecise. And we kind of think about it as this ether that you can't quite get any grasp on. And so what I really wanted to do was look at the process of cultural change and where cultural value comes from. And in doing that, I had discovered that there were all these principles and laws and common patterns very much like if you study economics, there's a supply and demand. Well, in, in fashion, there is uh, a very clear pathway towards something becoming cool and then everyone doing it and then it not being cool anymore. And, you know, we know about some of those ideas, but if you, you know, reading about them in, in, in graduate school, I studied consumer behavior and marketing and I was interested in reading all these classical theories, but they're all isolated in the sense that you read a book that says Zimmel says this, and then Bourdieu says this, and Veblen says this, and they're all kind of different and sorry, we can't reconcile any of them. And so I just assumed there was some book out there that would boil all those things down to one set of principles that you could just read that book and you say, okay, great, got how culture works and why it changes and wonderful. And so I looked for that book for about 20 years uh, I just always thought I was one one thing away from finding it and then just realized, okay, no one has written this book. And so I got to do it if if I'm going to do it. And so I always have that in my, the back of my head is that's the book I'm going to write, you know, I don't know when I'm 60 or something. That's, that's like my final, final thing. But with Amatora, you know, it, when it came out in 2015, I got so much, I don't want to say criticism, but so much pushback from my friends saying, why would you write such a niche book? No one is going to read this. And, you know, I, I was like, hey, this is, <laughs> I, I loved writing it. I think it's interesting. I think there's more of an audience you think there is. Um, 
And, you know, they were wrong. I don't, I don't know if I was right because I didn't expect the, the kind of reception that it ended up getting. But, uh, you know, I didn't th I didn't think about it. I just thought, you know, well, I write niche books. That's I like writing niche books. What's wrong with niche? Uh, but then I kind of thought, OK, well, you know, if everyone wants niche, if everyone wants not niche, what's my big not niche book? And I, I had that idea in the back of my head. OK, I got to write a book that solves what culture is. And so I, as I set out to do that and, you know, I basically found every single book that I had ever heard of that had to do with cool and, and 20th century culture and um, and Tom Wolfe and, you know, read all that and put it all together. And as I was doing that, I realized there was kind of a thread across all of these laws, which was status, which and um, more or less that, you know, it used to be in the 19th century or the 18th century that a trend would start among rich people and then would kind of boil down to, you know, trickle down to the middle class and then go to poor people. And obviously in the 20th century, that doesn't make any sense anymore because so much of our rich cultural heritage, like jazz or hip hop, didn't necessarily start at the top and, and go down in terms of income. So, you know, th that was a lot of those theories were kind of thrown out. And but then I realized if you think about it as, in terms of status rather than in terms of income, then it all starts making sense again. And so I was going to write a book that was here's the history of culture or here's how culture works and the secret of status. And, you know, the word culture is is just a really, really horrible word in the sense that if you say I'm going to write a book about culture, they say, oh, is that like ballet? It's like, no, 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 it's about, you know, pop culture, uh, you know, or, oh, is that about organizational rules within companies. No, it's, you know, so you know, the word culture is so ambiguous. I, I had a hard time even in getting my agent to like, kind of bite on this idea. But oddly, once I said, okay, it's a book about status and culture, then everyone said, oh, wow, that's great. We should definitely do that. And the at the time I was planning it, the other part of this is that I assumed that there was a book on status that I was just going to go read the same way. It's just, okay, so I got to figure out how status works. I'm going to go read these books and then uh, I'll input all that into the model and all work. And then I realized there wasn't a particularly good book about how status works. And, you know, uh, Alan de Botton had done Status Anxiety, which I think is a very smart book, but he doesn't really quite get into the individual status seeking and and what effects those that has and it, kind of the mechanics of it he just talks a lot about the philosophy how that's driven you know philosophical movements over time and then in the last i think two years a ton of books have come out about status it's now kind of a hot topic um, none of us really agree on what status is or how to define it which is quite frustrating for readers if they read all of them so there's one the status game which is very much about um you know, almost the evolutionary psychology desire behind status. And he looks at, you know, much more darker subjects like the Holocaust and uh, mass murders and things like that. And then uh, there's a new book by a former colleague, Chuck Thompson, called Stat I think Status Revolution or something. He defines status in a different way. Um, so it's all, all very confusing. But, you know, what I really was had discovered was that in the 50s and 60s there's a lot of sociology that did look at these status principles and so that's where i mostly pulled from and there's a lot of recent um uh, scholarship from psychology about it as well and then you know basically just proving that status seeking is logical and that you know human beings are kind of you know we have we have to seek status in some way and i think also redefining status until now status has been seen as just this you know, people trying to outdo each other. And it's it's not simply that. I think if you want to be a member of a group in good standing, that's a form of status. And once you can combine our need to be part of a group in good standing, but also 
for that group itself to do better and better and also for our us you know to be esteemed it doesn't have, you know there's a difference in how much we want to be esteemed but everyone wants to be esteemed that there is a status desire in all of us and i try to show through the book that that alone if you just take this one single principle and look at how it plays out you can look at individual taste and the way we create our identities you can look at the way that groups battle between each other and that creates new aesthetics and then you can look at the fact that status seeking creates permanent change and that's what fashion is and so uh and also the way that we remember history has is you know incredibly status inflected as well that you can't escape from these things so you know that's i you know people are some people really love the way i wrote this book and some people find it a slog and Honestly, it was the hardest thing I've ever written by a lot. I think you're writing Amatora, you're writing a story, it's moving from the past to the future. It's really, really clear. You have characters. And for a book like this, I tried to bring in as many anecdotes as possible at each chapter to make it as you know easy, easy to digest. But it ultimately is a book that you're going to read to learn a bunch of principles that you'll be able to apply to your entire life. And you'll be able to forever understand how this something works that you're just not going to get from any other book. You can read 50 books and probably get these lessons, but there is not another book that teaches you all these things in kind of one book. And if you have patience and even if you hate it, I think you'll still come out uh, knowing knowing how to understand these things more. And if you're interested in fashion, I think all this is is must know knowledge. I think what you how you summed it up at the end there is very very important and true because there are a lot of lessons there which would be very useful for young people to be aware of. Um, an example might be uh, some young person who wants to be an influencer, and knowing that high status people really aren't that interested in you <laughs> might be a surprise to some. So you're not going to get Kanye West to repost you. Because he has no interest in that. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's people, bad for his status if he does. Quite. But you'll find the people with low status reposting, trying to be noticed by those with higher status, which is kind of Instagram in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, and the, one of the weird critiques of the book is hey, this book is describing the 20th century. This has nothing to do with the 21st century. And perhaps if you're defining status as the way people ascend the hierarchy without money. Because that's the way Max Weber used it was kind of like that. It said, you know, in medieval society, you have people who are rich and you have people who are powerful. And then you have people with status like a priest who maybe doesn't have power at that time, but just has some sort of esteem for being, you know, venerated in this venerable profession. And, uh, you know, I'm defining it much more as just status is your position in a hierarchy. And the posi- no, there's no change in this world of positions and hierarchies. People are still in these hierarchies. And Instagram makes these things clearer than ever before. And in some ways, we live in a much more status-dominated world than ever. And it's uh, and and the point of the book also is it you know we can't quite escape it. It's not a book about how to get out of the system. But if anything, there are some outcomes that are quite good for people where status battles go into art and they go into what I would call complexity or symbolic complexity, which is just when things get more obscure. And when it just becomes a battle of I have a larger object than yours or I have mine has more gold than yours, it's actually quite boring because all you're doing is competing on things that do not expand human minds at all. 
Um, I, I do think that this book, a uh, uh, kind of kid's version would be good. I don't know quite how to do it yet, but, you know, Status Guide for Teenagers would be a really useful book for any kid who's in high school. And the other thing, too, is for artists. I mean, I think I, I would have loved to have known the lessons of how to succeed in art um, when I was trying to make music, you know, in my 20s or something, which is that you you have to be making music that tries to solve the problems of the time and you can't make music that is you know in styles that are from five years ago you have to be at the place where the the people who are kind of you know the gatekeepers or the real institution of whatever scene you're in they're they're interested in hearing innovation that's a specific kind of innovation and if you don't do the right kind of innovation you're kind of out of the narrative and you'll just never make it the same way and so you know, had I known that, I was working on a lot of styles that were, uh, you know, already out. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll just do them. I'll do these out styles a little bit better. But they weren't, there was no hope for me in the sense I was just working on the wrong, wrong things. And so, you know, had I worked on the right things, that would have been, uh, or known to work on the right things, I think it just would have made it a lot better for me. So that that's another, if you're interested in making making art or understanding how to create things that people will notice and then uh, see as an innovation rather than just a quirky novelty. I think the book is also useful for that. Mm. But you have to keep in mind that 8-bit music is kind of hot and back again, but NFTs have totally tanked. So you don't want to be too far ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah, and being, being too hard, far ahead of the curve is also... Um, it doesn't work. I mean, it only works if later somebody gives you credit for it but somebody has to know or that you continued it you can start and you could be the insane person who says hey i'm gonna keep doing this um even though nobody likes it and then at some point people catch on and you're a genius but most people don't have patience for that i i mean with amatora i the reason it's probably selling better this year than it did when it came out uh is because at the time, there just were few people interested in Japanese fashion. And now there's lots and lots of young people who are interested in this and they all want to know the story and that that has helped. And I, I, it's not necessarily that I was a genius to forecast that because I would have never, never thought that was true. It's just that I was so uh, blindly interested in this this niche story that uh, it, it just worked out. I think... In 2015, though, the interest in Japanese stuff was different than the interest today. Back then, it was more denim workwear, nerdy forum guys. That's right. But now it's the whole street tech wear from a lot wider audience. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wrote an afterword. So we're going to reissue Amatora in English in uh, September, I believe. And so I turned in, I got to fix a couple errors, which was great. But then also I wrote an afterward uh, about basically what happened in the story from 2015 to 20, 2023. And the truth is that Japanese fashion just became fashion in the sense that, you know, the world, it's just, you know, especially men, menswear, it's just in the world of menswear, it's just at the top of the menswear world. And people know that it's Japanese and special, but it's not its own category. And so for so many of these hip hop guys, you know, they're all wearing Japanese brands. They may not even know. And 
uh, Michelle Obama was wearing Sakai, the Japanese brand recently, you know, so it, it has, it is mainstreamed. It's, it's still an elite thing, but it's, it's definitely mainstreamed. I think, you know, Unico is bigger than it was then, but it still hasn't quite taken over America the way, you know, the gap did, but among celebrities, Japanese fashion is just, you know, very, very big in their world. Because Uniqlo kind of became what Van Jackets hoped to be, I think, and has very clear IV roots. That's correct. But I mean, I also think that what they're obsessed with is creating the perfect sweater that comes from nowhere, in a sense that they're not interested in saying this is a Fair Isle sweater that has this heritage. They're, it's like, this is the perfect wool for the perfect fit of the perfect sweater they're trying to kind of boil everything down to its most utilitarian uh which is also very japanese i mean i think that's i write about that in the afterword which is it's it is a very japanese approach to kind of try to take all the culture out of things and just make it some sort of utopian cosmopolitan uh, garment and i think that's what Unico is very good at now, one of the things I really enjoyed in Status and Culture was how you got into the classes, economic capital, cultural capital, and you were talking about sort of old money fashion versus mm -hmm. new money, which really put words on a lot of things that sort of all came together then. Old money fashion, what's that? So to have old money fashion, you have to have new money fashion first, in a sense, because if you live in a world in which everyone is, let's say, more or less equal or, or um, you know, you have a power structure and money is not really a factor, but then suddenly you have all these rich people, which is what happened in, uh, you know, the, let's say, 17th century or 18th century. So you have all these rich people suddenly showing up who can't get into the world of status because the world status is all aristocrats. And so what they can do is, you know, the aristocrats are buying all these fancy things. Well, they now have the money to also buy them. And so they're going and buying flashy items to show, hey, we, we now live a lifestyle the same as you. But at the time, there were still all these restrictions in the sense that they couldn't, you know, it was a caste system. You couldn't break the caste system. But once you have the French Revolution and you start you know, having modern times, well, now you can really compete uh, with your money to to win status. And what happens for people who don't have money, who are mid middle or low status and uh, make a lot of money? Well, the money itself doesn't get you status. It's living a lifestyle, being around people who have a lot of status gets you status. And so you've got to convert that money into consumer goods and you've got to con and and those consumer goods have to be fancy. And so you know, buying the most expensive things possible is a very new money move, but it's it's universal. I mean, this is something that has existed across cultures and you don't have to learn it. It's just a kind of a natural response if you've got have money. So things get very flashy and especially because there's a kind of way of doing things in high class circles and that's what cultural capital really means. If you if you have cultural capital it means you can exist in a high status group and people accept you as one of them because you can behave like they can. And so you know those forms of behavior. And so what happens with new money is they don't know those forms of behavior and they just assume, well, we have money and, and expensive things are better, so we'll just get the most expensive things. And so 
what happens is that if you have a society in which you have the new money and they're dressing very flashy and you have old money who are now threatened by this new group and sometimes don't have as much money as new money, then there have to there there has to be a way for them to kind of fight back. And so um, if you counter signal, which is to more or less refuse to signal through money, then what you're doing is making the act of signaling through money a kind of crass new money thing. And so old money kind of doubles down on their the fact that everyone already knows who they are, you know, especially, you know, in the 20th century, people know who's old money, so they don't have to prove their old money. And so they can wear beat up sweaters and drive beat up cars and have kind of crumbly, crumbling old estates because they've had this money for, for years. And by not doing fancy things or, you know, driving fancy cars, they make a fancy car look that is it's new money and new money is always on a lower position than old money. And so old money fashion comes from certain cultural practices of people being together, but it also comes from the fact that there's total disdain for new money flashiness. And so there's kind of a counter reaction to that that ends up in this kind of musty shabbiness. If anyone wants to read, you know, the real kind of Bible of old money fashion. I mean, there's the preppy handbook and all that, which is kind of the, the joke fun version of it. But uh, Nelson Aldrich has a book called old money that you should definitely read. And he is, he was very old money and his friends are very old money. And so he just understood this, um, uh, you know, obviously he has the eye of kind of a, a sociologist looking at the way it works, but he really understood uh, the, the basic principles of it because he grew up with them. Hmm. Hmm. That is interesting because I suppose new money also tries to gain status, say by wearing huge logos, which is a very easy move for the old money to counteract. That's right. And then the other part of that too is why are they wearing a big logo? It's not simply, hey, look at me. I have, you know, I can wear Polo Ralph Lauren now, but, uh, you know, often the t their tastes are formed in a lower status group. And they need to make sure that the people from their old lives know that they've made it. And so in some ways they have to also use symbols that everyone understands and the, you know, they're universal kind of broadly known symbols. Whereas old money, they don't care about anyone's esteem other than a small group of people. So they can, you know, basically focus on these more obscure symbols. They, you know, people can tell from the way that the buttons are sewn that it's a fancy jacket rather than needing a logo. So once you have a kind of any small focused world of people, you, you don't need these big, big symbols and symbolic gestures because everyone can kind of just figure out uh, who's who's fancy based off small gestures. Hmm. So given that there's these gatekeepers between the sort of levels of status, is there actually any way to to work your way upwards? The I, I do think about this quite a bit because in our ultra capitalist world, if you make a lot of money, you will move up in status. I mean, it's just true. And you can use that money for lots of different things. You can go to all the places of people with high status and show off. You can buy expensive objects and show off. You will impress a lot of people. And I also think the influence of old money is very low. There really isn't an old money world that you have to appeal to anymore. And so with the death of old money, you can just be crass and have the most stuff and that gets you status. So that 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 is one thing. I do think that there is 
a lot of move for people who make a lot of money in boring things to try to take that money and do uh, cooler things in arts and culture. So, I mean, I, I've, I've been on this Twitter tear recently about um, David Solomon, who is the CEO of Goldman Sachs, who's a DJ. Um, so he's, he DJs under, he DJs EDM under the name DJ D soul. And, you know, it is quite funny. I mean, I'm sure he's passionate about music, but it's just funny that the CEO of Goldman Sachs isn't high status enough just being the CEO of Goldman Sachs. He has to prove that I also can DJ at Lollapalooza or whatever. So this is the you know world that we're in. And so for really rich people, they are still converting things to cultural capital, but the cultural capital isn't old money cultural capital. It's kind of tech and, and uh, music cultural capital. I think for normal people, if you're, if you're not going to make a ton of money um, and, and really to move up in terms of status with money, you have to make a lot of money. I mean, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions. So if you really, really want to move up, I mean, you, you do have to make really great contributions to society in some ways and, and win people's esteem. And if you're a virtuoso at something, that's an easy way to do it. And I think it's funny, Instagram really rewards, I think, virtue uh, virtuosity in the sense of here's somebody playing piano incredibly, or here's somebody taking a bucket and drumming really, really well. And so, um, you know, those kind of skills are rewarded, but then otherwise, you know, just, uh, you win, you win status, the old heart, you know, old fashioned way, which is just working really hard and building up, uh, your reputation over time and, and contributions. Um, and, the money, if you have the money, but you don't really convert it into things that people respect, you don't have status. And if you're, you know, a jerk, if you have all the money in the world, but you're a jerk, you know, which I think you're seeing with Elon Musk on Twitter or something that, you know, that also really kills your status. And so, I don't know, it's it, it's just complicated. There's There's many ways to get there, but ultimately... I think human beings are quite good at saying this person can have all the ingredients, but I just don't respect them. Uh, ultimately, the the source of status is respect, and you've you've got to be respected for some reason. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you saw the episode of Black Mirror that where everyone sort of had a continuously updated status rating, uh, but that's kind of where we are now, where someone like Kanye West goes from being sort of master of the universe to yesterday's news. Right. By a few bad tweets. No, I mean, and that's right. And that's what also make, you know, it makes it really clear that these things aren't, um, these things are collective judgments. And they're also collective judgments in which we aren't just considering our own personal view, but we're thinking about what you're thinking about and what that person's thinking that that person's thinking. And so, you know, uh, people's reputations are not just formed they're formed collectively and at the moment one one false move can really get you uh you know the word canceled is, is very loaded and and there's a kind of big debate about how how much cancel culture is true but i mean kanye west you're you're not allowed to be anti-semitic it's just not okay we don't accept that in in modern society and so that that's it for him hmm but you do have the opposite of cancel culture. Now I'm just riffing, but you, when people sort of swarm to like something, something just becomes more and more liked because more and more people are liking it. I see it with, say, a TV series where everyone's talking about this and I go to see it and it's, hang on, this wasn't that great. <laughs> but 
it was like the first Dan Brown book. Uh, yep. Things like that. No, I mean, most certainly um, that's the bandwagon effect. I mean, that's an actual economic term. But yeah, people like things when other people like them. And that makes perfect sense. Again, if if so much of the value we take out of things is a social value, and it could be simply the value of, I want to talk about this TV show with somebody. I'd rather watch a TV show that people know about than one that I have to explain. Then that social value is really key. And then the point I'm, I make in the book is that status value is a really key component of social value and it infects all of our judgments. And so also it's hard for a lot of people if they know someone that they really respect loves a TV show and they watch it and they don't get it, but they feel like, well, something's wrong with me. And, and then they work really hard and they convince themselves they like it. Then they want to go around being like, I love this thing. I mean, we make fun of that, but it's, it's, it is uh, so, sort of impossible for us to avoid but I mean, and, and honestly, I think that principle of, of people has been massively important for my own taste making over the years, which is when you're 13 and you some cool kids like I'm really into the Pixies or Dinosaur Junior or something. If you listen to it the first time and you don't aren't told that this is good, you'll just think it's insane. And or you'll say, I don't I don't understand this. I'm not going back to it. But I think with that pressure of. Look, you like you don't get it now, but you're gonna get it because you just it's it, you're the problem, not not the you know pixies. Then you listen to it over and over again, and then on the thirtieth time, you say, okay, wow, okay, this this is incredible, and it is incredible. They you know that they weren't wrong, and so uh, with I don't I do think we live in a world, unfortunately, where everybody is way too confident in their own tastes and has rejected any kind of social pressure as being getting in the way of personal relationships with art where you do need people who know more about things to tell you you're wrong and to say, Hey, you know, give this, give this a try. And it could be that they're wrong and it could be that you go through the whole process and you still hate it. But, you know, some sort of pressure just to break you out of, I only know these things. I only like these things to, to make you forced to listen to something else is good. And I, I've been listening to like some modern hip hop, and the first time I was listening to Trap, I really hated it because it, it just seems really juvenile. And uh, and I mean, the lyrics are not and there's no depth and the all the beats seem like a template. And then, you know, you listen to enough of it. And you start kind of understanding the conventions of it and you understand why a certain song is better than another one. And there's I'm never going to be the biggest fan of it, but I like it a little bit more. I understand it a little bit more. And and. And then when, you know, Ice Spice comes out or something and, and I hear that, I get it much more than I would have a year ago. So uh, it's it's good to always be challenging yourselves. And and that uh, social pressure that we now reject, unfortunately, was a really, really useful mechanism for that. Hmm. I still don't get uh, trapped. So I went straight back to old school. Um, yeah. I mean, if, would I rather listen to De La Soul or Trap? No, I, I mean, De La Soul to me is always going to be better just because there's so much craft in the lyrics and there's so much craft in the rap and there's so much craft in the production. But, um, but you know, it's there. there's always, whether things are primitive or, or simple or complicated or whatever, There, there's always some sort of value or, or uh, innovation there to, to try to grapple with. I have feel I've grown more and more uncertain of my own taste, and I had to actually get off forums and stuff because it was so easy to be swayed by 
everyone's else everyone else's expertise and opinions uh, and it just was really a bad place so moving back and trying to discover now what is it i actually like um not because some guy somewhere else says oh that's a fire garment or whatever mm. so sometimes i think we should just close down the internet and uh, start thinking for ourselves again i mean it's at difficult least in because respects. no i i understand that sentiment and um you know i i'm definitely this year thinking quite a bit about what's the what's the right amount of internet in your life because you know, just being on it all the time is not, not the right amount. And, you know, if you look at status and culture, there's 620 sources and I had to read, I had to read all of those. And so I did spend a lot of time not reading the internet, but reading books and I read a lot of books, but I still look at Instagram a lot. And, uh, it's not even that the time I spend on it is going to, you know, other things cause it's during commutes or whatever it's, it's during kind of dead time. But it's more just how it makes me feel and the pressure on constantly needing to be in the know. I think that's what is very exhausting about the internet. At the same time, it's like things only have value and meaning when they have shared social meaning. And if you don't, if you're not participating in those shared social meetings, you do miss out on it. And so that's, that's a hard one. I don't quite know yet how to balance that. Um, I think with book reading, there's a lot of serendipity in just finding certain things or you know, reading one thing that leads to another and I end up reading books that people just don't read anymore or um, aren't interested in. And they're great. And it's really great to read them. I don't have, I can't talk about them with anybody, but it's, it's, it's really refreshing to feel like you're discovering things on your own. Uh, but at the same time, I think, I think you have to balance. I think you maybe you find places that you're really passionate about where your goal is to be as individualistic as possible and to chart new courses and then other things where you're just happy to, to be middle of the road. Um, I, I think one of the most influential books I read, um, which is, I mean, it almost should be a blog post. I don't know if it, it needed to be a whole book, but this book, Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz, which more or less made the point that if you have too many choices, you get choice paralysis and you don't want to choose at all. And I think that's a, that's a generally good principle, but, but the indie talks about how to avoid it. And he says, you know, don't be a perfectionist on everything, be a satisficer, which means realize that most things are good enough and pick the two things in your life that you're super passionate about. And that's where you're going to put all your snobbery. That's where you're going to put all the intense need for perfection. And then everything else can just be good enough. And so for me, um, you know, books and maybe, you know, men's fashion are areas that I'm pretty passionate about, but coffee, I mean, I, I, I like good coffee, but I'm, I'm just never going to, you know, I, I have, I have mediocre coffee a lot of the time and it's fine. I just, I'm never going to be a snob about everything, but I think the minute that you start to have to be maximally have maximal good things all the time. It's both exhausting to you and then exhausting to everyone around you because nothing's ever good enough. Mm, the internet has been terrible for that. Whenever you need a new gizmo of some sort, it's full on research because you can't right. buy the second best one. <laughs> right, right. And if for a toaster or something, it really, you know, the second best toaster is going to be fine. Yeah. I, I do appreciate the some of the creativity of internet though. Uh, I don't, you probably come across the podcast Reply All, sadly now gone, but they used to do these yes, yes, no episodes 
but they'd find this tweet that made absolutely no sense at all. And then they'd pick apart all the cues that lay behind it, which could be completely... I was fascinated by it because it was sort of... You got to look into all these different subcultural weird worlds of stuff. Um, so creative. So I wish they'd made a lot more of those. And look, my book is pretty not nice about the creativity of the internet, or at least quite skeptical about it. And I, you know, I do think meme culture was an incredible flourishing and, and, you know, an anonymous in some ways, it's almost like graffiti. It's, it's, you see a meme, you don't know who created it, but they're just brilliant memes. Um, I guess my issue with a tweet or a meme is that it's not a TV show and it's not a film. And it's not a book, mm. you know, seeing a meme is like, that was funny. And then you move on in a way that, you know, you feel like you've had a cultural experience. Hey kid, you know, the culture now is memes. I saw a meme done for the day. Whereas they're, they're, you know, pre-internet, we were very much focused on more classic art forms. And it's not to say that all art forms have to be stuck in those traditional formats, but they were, they, a lot of them were created with some sort of craft at a slower pace and tw memes can be really funny, but they're, they're just not, they're not a replacement for novels. I suppose a lot of them are just a little dopamine hit of, oh, I got that. That's funny. So you think, oh, I'm smart. And for the people creating them too, it's like a race to see who can make the most clever response. You know, in I was in a comedy uh, publication club in college, and one of the things is people sitting around, you would riff and you just, you know, talk about something and everyone's making jokes on it. And the internet's like, you know, a big riff party in the sense that everyone's sitting around trying to make the best joke about whatever the topical news is and people are incredible at it i mean there there are some people that are the best they're fast they just know the perfect format and they have the audiences to really make their things go so you know there's absolutely no uh disrespect to to the that that skill that skill is incredible it's just a question of if we're only doing that and not doing the other things is that uh is that good for us and then the other question is just is that that short dopamine hit or the the sense of constant refresh of content and novelty uh, i think has made it very hard for people to watch films and read books and it's also made the format of all those things have to adapt to the constant refresh and novelty and so um i don't know i'm not i i hate the moral panics that always happen with any kind of new technology so i don't want to also get oh, yeah. get into oh, yeah. that but i i do think there's probably some sort of limit that we've hit with how how fast we can go hmm. sometimes you just need to pick an old calvin and Hobbes off the shelf and uh, sit down or I, far I, side. I, I i read yeah, right i mean i that's what i read all the time and and i really love it and i can't read on screens and i can't read on a kindle and i need i need the books and um i have a pen i have a you know a pencil and I make marks to take notes from the book and, you know, just sitting there intentionally with the book and reading it and whether it's on the train or, or whatever, it's just, it, it really is my, my daily source of pleasure. And I know, and I, you know, under my desk, I've got, um, you know, the, the bookshelf behind me is the books I have read. And then under my feet, I've got about another probably 200 books, um, 
that I feel like I need to get to. And so there's also a sense that I'm, I'm good. You know, I, I basically probably have a decade's worth of books at my feet uh, that I know that I want to read at some point. Hmm. Well, I, t I totally agree on that. Books have to be on paper the same way. I prefer newspapers as paper. You know, I, I think that's, that's a good intro. I mean, you know, all these conversations are, are great, but at the end of the day, uh, <laughs> today I feel like I'm a writer and the things in the book are about, uh, you know, 200 times better than I can explain them in person because I got to sit there and chisel away at the idea for draft after draft until it was as crisp as possible. So if any of this seems interesting or intriguing or confusing, I, if you read the books, that will be much more enjoyable. One thing I really liked about Amatora and the period after it was published was that it wasn't just a dead book after it was published. You kept up updates online, additions, corrections, uh, and all that. You're not including that in the second version. Well, the on the second version, I was able to make some corrections. The the largest correction. I mean, there was a couple tiny things, and I a couple people came came out of the woodwork to complain about. Hey, that's hey, that's not how it was. Um, and so I changed a couple of things. But the main was that at the time I wrote it, there was a general understanding that Kensuke Ishizu of Van Jacket had designed the red, the iconic 1964 Olympics red jacket blazer uniform for the Japanese Olympic team. And then there was a huge, I wouldn't call it scandal, but there was this big controversy where um, a woman met had met the actual tailor and got the full story and wrote a whole book about how he had done it and not Kensuke Ishizu. And she she had very remarkable scholarship and, and was right. And everybody who said it was Kensuke Shizu kind of slunk back and said, OK, maybe not. Um, so I I got to update that in the book, which is good because I had it wrong. I think that was the only real glaring error. And then uh, and then in the afterward, I do, you know, talk. I talk about some of some of those those updates and how things have changed. And um yeah, I mean, I think I I remember meeting a professor who had d done a book on Japanese hip hop in I think two thousand and three, and there was another hip hop boom in Japan, and I saw him and I said, "Wow, you know, it's a great time to be here because there's another hip hop boom, and you know, what a great continuation of your book." And he he just said very curtly, "Like I'm done with that research," and uh, I thought okay, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to write a book and then say, I'm done with that. Like not interested in any, any uh, updates to it. And you know, there are probably people more passionate about Japanese menswear than I am at the moment, but I will forever be interested in the next direction the story takes. And, you know, at the end of the book, I talk about the fact that I think people are going to make Amatora outside of Japan and import it back in Japan. And that is happening. And, um, that I set up that question for, you know, where things are going to go. And I'm interested in the answers to that. So, uh, I will always, always be interested in it. And I would love it to be a book that every 10 years or five years, I get to go back and write another afterward or preface or whatever to say, uh, you know, no one would have expected this, but now here's where we are. And, uh, it really, you know, when you write a history like that, you're just putting a really arbitrary, stake in the ground saying, okay, it's until this point, it's until 2015, this is all true. And so, uh, you know, you, you not only can discover more things from the past that kind of pop out, but then going forward, 
there's always a new chapter to be written and and that's that's pretty cool yeah because as i see it that period in japanese menswear is you're the guy that documented that and if you hadn't done it maybe no one would have because it's not some war or some major occasion that historians normally write about and i think it's so nice to have a sort of definitive well-written proper version of events uh, i mean you have people blogging about stuff but blogs disappear that information is lost forever but actually having books about it and it would be so nice if it was expanded over time and so forth i mean i was a, a minor, minor player in a, a music scene way back and it's been written about a couple of times and everything that's been said about me in that has been totally incorrect and it is so <laughs> annoying because it would be so cool if that music scene was correctly documented mm. with proper information that the because then it would be there and people could i could give it to my kids and they say look i mentioned here i was part of this not in the garbage way it is written i'm very proud and Vamatora, and in, in you were right that I don't know if someone else would have done it just because it, it took a level of almost pathological obsession that a normal person probably wouldn't have, which is, <laughs> you know, I went to the diet library and was just pulling out all these old magazines and copying old interviews and reading, you know, what people in 1964 were saying. And, you know, these are things that probably no one had read in 50 years uh, and just maniacally trying to figure out the story because i was always so unsure of myself that i'm not getting it right i gotta got i've got to find the first pair of jeans etc etc and so um that fear of getting it wrong really pushed me you know very very far and also just the fact that i know the story itself and that i could read japanese all these things were you know very specific skills to me but the thing that i worry about is that I wrote that very naively in the sense that I didn't think about, okay, can I get a big advance for this? You know, or is it, is it my best career move? Is this the book I should be writing next? Except, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And now I'm very much thinking about these things and I probably wouldn't write another book like Amatora because it takes a lot of time. And if it's that niche and it doesn't catch on, it's just like, well, that's an odd mm. blip in that person, <laughs> that author's catalog. So, you know, it, it came very much out of a time of, hey, I have a full-time job. I mean, that's the other really important part of this. I had a full-time job. Um, and so I didn't have to worry about, is this book going to make me any money? Because that's what, not what it was about. Uh, at some point in the future, if I don't have a full-time job, then I will be thinking, what's the book I can write that <laughs> will pay me more royalties so I can just write books? And so, you know, that was a perfect storm of just being able to write a book very purely on a subject and hope that people care. And it's been wonderful that people care uh, and the number of people who care has increased over time, but that doesn't happen always. And mm. uh, it doesn't matter how good the story is. It's just, it just, it has to have some factors of people being, you know, that, that pull that people want the information, not just it, it's out there. There's a lot of really obscure, great books. And so um, Anyway, so it's I it, it does make me really happy that it's, it's still being read, and I hope it's continued to be read. And I'm trying now to think about how to write a book that engages people as much as Amatora, but also um, doesn't necessarily have to be on on such an obscure niche topic. But the thing is, people have already taken all the really well known topics, so 
that's that's the I th- difficulty. I think you need the sort of um, the third side of what you have got because status and culture sort of it sort of meshes into Amatora. Yep. So you need a sort of one more that sort of completes the worldview. I don't have it sort of come to mind right now, but I'll get back to you. When I <laughs> if you do, let me know. I mean, the I think the thing I think about is like, what is the book that people would want me to write? Um, and I am I am working on another book, and it's it's a more of an extension of status and culture, but and it kind of plugs in some of the holes of status and culture, and it's mm. it, more or less about aesthetics. But um, you know, and for me also, it's it's trying to learn about things that I don't understand. I want to understand them uh, better than I do, and so by researching, you know, very intently about it, I can kind of get my own understanding and then pass on that understanding to other people. And and things like status and things like culture and things like aesthetics are really difficult. They're just really difficult things to understand because they're not as straightforward as a chemical reaction or a supply and demand in economics. And so you Mm. really have to understand all sorts of different things from different fields and bring them together. And I love doing that process of synthesis, but um, you're right. I mean, I, I, I know what the next two books I want to write are They're One of them is a little bit more like status and culture. One of them is a little bit more like Amatora. Uh, and now it's just how fast I can get to get to them because they, they, I, whatever I write takes a lot of research. They're not just kind of, my my personal thoughts on things one final thought do you think it was the fact that you were a total outsider that gave you the idea for amatora because the guys you're writing about for them it was just business what they were doing they for i imagine for them it wasn't actually a story in in many ways look i there is a there's a white american privilege i had speaking Japanese, going to these people and saying, hey, I want to write a book about your history because the status of America for especially the the people involved in that story is very high. I mean, the idea that, hey, I'm going to write a book in English about your lives. Uh, I got access to things and access to people that I don't think they would have even given Japanese authors access to. So that privilege was given to me and I took it and I made the most of it. Um, I, I do think that, I think that they understand, I think Amatori, they, they understand that, that, that it's a very specific perspective that, that in Japan you wouldn't have. And, and so one of the things, one of the things I was told about the Japanese reception was that the chapter on Yankee style, kind of the delinquent style, most people would not have put that in the book. That's just, that's kind of seen as not part of that world. And um, every book that you see about about Ivy and Van, you know, you, you tell the story of Van, you tell the story of Take Ivy, Preppy Style, but there's all that. And then there's books about denim and workwear. The And there's some books about the Yankee stuff, like Bosozoku, um, Motorcycle Gang, photo books and things, but nobody puts these all together. And, and for me, it was, you know, if you're going to talk about the American influence on upper class style you also have to talk about I mean, there's a whole group called yankee where do you think that word comes from yankees you know so what was going on there and how did they all interact and so i i did that and i think that is someone in japan would not have put that all in there but then i heard a lot of really strong feedback from people interested in that 50 style that they were so happy that someone had really recognized that whole cultural streams contribution to Japanese fashion because until then it had been excluded. And so um, it's not just, oh, this is a strange American perspective on this. I think people saw it as, okay, that's, 
that is a more accurate perspective that just would, wouldn't have been possible if you were Japanese because mm. um, it's really, really hard to get out of your class worldview. And especially because people don't believe class exists in Japan. It's a very, um, it's not an actually classless society, but the, the culture is very much about trying to suppress all class difference. Just even thinking about things that way, it was a little bit taboo. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, there is a reason this book didn't exist in that format in Japanese, uh, because you kind of had to be outside of it a little bit. Okay. Any final words you'd like to mention before we uh, say goodbye? No, I mean, thank you so much for so closely reading the books. And I hope that, um, you know, this conversation and the books themselves are, are interesting to your listeners and happy to always take more questions when people have them. Excellent. Okay. Thank you very much, David. And um, enjoy your dinner. Thank you for having me on. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.